Good morning. Hello to all. It's good to see each of you here this morning. Uh, it's just a, a joy to be here with you. If you're joining us from home, I want to say hi to you as well. Thanks for, for making this a part of your Sunday morning. We're continuing uh, in the account of Jesus' life and ministry given to us in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, what we're, we're in the middle, we've been in it for a couple weeks, but we're in the middle of a section of scriptures that are really seeking to answer and explain to us in this passage. And uh, the one that we're looking at this morning tells us of the profound grace of God that Jesus brings to bear on the world and, and on our lives. And, it, and it, one of the arguments that it's making to us is that the sheer power of the grace of God has the ability to reorder who we are, to reorder our affections, to, um, to reorder who we are as people, to reorder even the world that we exist in. And so that's what we're talking about this morning is uh, Jesus's reordering grace and the way it should draw from us our just our highest and greatest uh, adorations. So let's look together at this story. This is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this for my feet? But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I pray as we sit under your word this morning. Uh, that you would use it for the good of your people, and that you would help us uh, as we seek to look at it, help us to learn more about you, that we might find this peace in you that you promise. And please help me, your servant, to be humble before your people and to, to love them well. 
I pray these things in Jesus' Jesus's name. Amen. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine named Don. Uh, his, name is, his name is not Don. That's a fake name. But it, Don, is, Don is a real person. And uh, you probably don't know Don. But one evening, Don finds himself at a dinner party with his wife. And, uh, and it was just, he just remembers it as a great time. Uh, he was, he, he loved the host. The host was a good friend to him and, uh, he loved the other friends that were there. They were all good friends and, uh, he loved the food. The food was quite good and the wine was rich and the conversation was, was, uh, really enjoyable. I mean, all the right things are kind of converging for a wonderful evening for him. And, uh, to hear the way Don describes this evening, he was on fire. Like his stories were great. Everything he told made people laugh. He had these one-liners that would hit people, and they would laugh until they couldn't breathe. And uh, he just had this great, great time. He was enjoying them, and he felt that he was being enjoyed by them. And so Don was feeling pretty good about himself when he got back in the car with his wife to go home after the dinner. And uh, he starts kind of replaying scenes from the dinner in his mind. And, uh, And he starts to ask himself questions like, did my friend Mary really, was she really, like, was that a real laugh when I told her the story about the thing, or was that a pity, like, was that a courtesy laugh, or was she, like, feeling sorry for me in that moment, and did I offend my other friend so-and-so when I said that thing, because I'm now remembering what happened, and, uh, and he just was suddenly very worried that other people might not have been experiencing him the way he thought they were experiencing him. And he turned to his wife at that moment and he asked her what I can only call a dangerous question. Did I say anything stupid tonight? And I won't tell you how that conversation went, but uh, I think it's safe to say that um, not everybody experienced the evening the way that Don did. Now, what am I talking about? I think one of the most wonderful things you can do for a person is have them over for dinner. Like the, the, the relationships that are cultivated there, the, the, the ways that we um, can build community through that just in many ways just can't be recreated any other way. It's so sweet. But there are norms that kind of govern the way we might enjoy something like a dinner party together. And they're really powerful. Like there are things that we will talk about and things that maybe we shouldn't talk about. There there are jokes that we could tell and there are other jokes that maybe we shouldn't. And often these norms or invisible rules, um, sometimes they're unstated and sometimes they're not even completely understood, but they have a powerful effect on us while, while we're gathered together. And, uh, and the story we just read, in so many ways, is a master demonstration to us of all the things that you do not do at dinner with other people. But Jesus doesn't seem bothered by it at all. And the question for everybody else at the dinner party is disturbed by what this woman is doing, but it doesn't seem to bother Jesus at all. And the question for us has to be why. And I want to talk about this in two different ways. One is uh, I want to talk about the way Jesus uh, disrupts our norms. And then finally, the way Jesus establishes our hope. The way he disrupts our norms and the way that he establishes our hope. 
Because there are societal norms that are being disrupted all over the place in this story. And to understand that, I really have to describe to you, it helps to know a little bit about the dinner. Uh, the, and, and what I want to, while talking about it, what I want to say is that um, <clears throat> there are norms of association that are being disrupted, that were uh, gravely important to the people that are being violated in this passage. And, and, and uh, at a dinner like this, this is the, the way that this text reads, it, it seems to us that it, it's a special meal. This is more than just a, a dinner party. This is really a banquet or a Sabbath meal of some kind. This is important territory in the life of these people. And uh, if that's the case, then it probably happened in the courtyard of this man Simon's uh, house. So it would have been this open-air courtyard surrounded by the home, and there would have been a central table, and everybody, it says Jesus was reclining at table. So everybody would kind of lay on the floor, uh, with like leaning toward, on your on your elbow, leaning toward the table and eating together with feet which were offensive and unclean, kind of radiating outward from the table, kind of like spokes on a wheel. And that's what it looked like. And the front door was often left open because uninvited guests, people walking along the street, were welcome. That was a norm. They were welcome to come in and sit in the courtyard and maybe listen to dinner conversation or, uh, or um, maybe beg for leftovers from the meal. But there was a clear line of association that's drawn in a meal like this because there are going to be those, and everybody would know it, there are going to be those who, uh, who were invited guests of the meal and those who were uninvited. And you did not cross that line. And we see that line being crossed here. There's a violation of like the norm of association. And add to that that uh, Luke tells us that this woman is a sinner. And he uses that word to, uh, in other places, and what he's describing is high immorality. She, um, we don't know for sure, but she's probably a, a prostitute, or, she's, or it could mean that she's married to a man that's notoriously immoral. And nobody at the table would uh, have any questions as to who she was, that she was known in this way in the community. And I don't know what caused her to cry. Perhaps she was hearing Jesus' teaching around the meal, and it moved her deeply. My view is I think this story sets us up to understand that it's more likely she had already come to know forgiveness from God in such ways that captured her soul and moved her to tears. This is an involuntary response. When you see this woman crying, it is an involuntary response to the sheer goodness, to to beginning to understand the sheer goodness of God's grace extended to her. That she is beginning to comprehend this. And the word that's used here to describe her crying, which we have as weeping, that's also used to uh, uh, to describe rain showers. Like, this isn't sprinkling here, like, one drop at a time. She is soaking his feet with her tears. She's completely undone. And then, of course, she undoes her hair. And that, too, is a violation in that society. Never supposed to do that. 
and she begins wiping his feet with her hair to try and dry him off. Like everything here would have been, sh- I can't under, I cannot overstate how, just how shocking this would have been. Simon is shocked. We see that here. Everybody else at the table is shocked, but Jesus isn't shocked. What he's doing, I need you to understand this. He is welcoming a violation of a social norm that was very powerfully governing in the people there. And this leads, um, this leads Simon to make an assessment. He looks at what's happening and he says, this man, Jesus, obviously is not a prophet because he knows he would, if he were a prophet, he would know who this woman is and he wouldn't welcome that, uh, that association like he does. And I want you to see how quickly that happened. An association was forged. It didn't make sense to them. And an assessment, a judgment was made about Jesus and this woman, and it happened just like that in order to try and make sense of common norms that, that, uh, that informed their existence together. So you see this association, you see an assessment, and then, uh, and then what you see are assumed roles getting flipped upside down. Now, the... In order to try and explain this, um, I probably need to give you an example. And, uh, and, and basically the point is, is that everybody has a part to play in every room that they walk into. We just kind of know what those are. If you take a, if you take a meeting, uh, let's say at work, it could be a work meeting, you have the person that called the meeting, right? They're probably in charge. You might have somebody who's presenting information. They're responsible for supplying content for the meeting. You might have people that were invited to, to, to uh, hear and respond to it. They're, they might be evaluating in some way, or they might be there to ask questions. But as soon as you walk into that room, you kind of know what part you have to play, what, what the point is for you being there. there. There are assumed roles most of the time whenever we're gathered together like we are even right now. And Simon is a host of the party. It's his house they're at. And not only that, he's a Pharisee, which means he's a religious teacher. And this woman is a sinner. And Jesus is a guest. He's an invited guest at this party. And when Jesus hears Simon think his assessment of of Jesus as a prophet, he responds by saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. A guest saying that to a Pharisee host. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. Roles are getting flipped upside down. And Jesus points to, the, to, to this woman and says, she understands something about God that you don't that would have been incredibly offensive. And not only that, completely destabilizing to the way that they understand the world. And so what he's doing is he's just challenging basic understandings that they have of who each other are and their existence in the world that have been well cultivated and understood by their whole community. And Jesus is undermining all of that. And when we see stories like this, it should disturb us a little bit. It should make us, it should make us ask, like, where do, where, do, where do our assumptions need to be challenged? It should challenge the way we think about God. Like when we look at this, 
it should challenge the things that we assume about who God is. It tells us, like Scripture over and over and over again tells us that God is mysterious, that His ways are, are far higher than our ways. In fact, it, the more stories of Jesus that we look at, you will find that Jesus just loves doing things like this. He loves, like... Take, ripping the rug out from people and saying, hey, these things that you think that you knew aren't exactly true. And you see God doing all kinds of confusing things throughout his scripture that, that don't quite make sense in our human minds. It almost feels counterintuitive in a lot of ways. And scripture leads us to believe over and over and over again that, that God, there, there, are, there are things about God that, are, that we will never be able to wrap our minds around. Like, we, we can't fully understand him and his ways. And if we could, he would really no longer be God to us. And so while God invites us through his word to understand him as fundamentally good, that he is always working on behalf of his people, if we're to follow him, following him often means following somebody that we don't completely understand, trusting him, in a world that we don't completely understand either. And if it challenges the way that we think about God, it should also challenge the way we think about the people around us. Because it's like the easiest thing in the world. I think we fall into this all the time. I'm as guilty as anybody. But we often think that we can size people up based on maybe what they do for a living or what their family looks like or where they live, or how they like to spend their free time. I mean, that's such an easy thing for us to do with the people around us. And Jesus says that this woman understands something that a religious, about God that a religious expert does not. In fact, most of the time, you see Jesus dignifying in powerful ways the most marginalized people in their communities. And this woman would have been one of them. And what I want you to see is that there is far more unimaginable beauty behind each person you meet than you might ever know. So everything about this story challenges the common ways that we understand things, doesn't it? Like the more we look at this, what we see is this massive challenge coming from Jesus that's supposed to rip apart some of the underpinnings of the assumptions that we make. And the more that we consider that, the more what Jesus is doing is saying that your understanding about the world and your your place in it and your people the people around you and your relationships with them. He is destroying a framework of assumptions that we make and operate out of all the time. He's like destabil. It's disequilibrating. Sorry, I use that word. It's destabilizing to us. But the wonderful thing about Jesus, when he challenges us the way that he does, like he is in this passage and like he is to us as we look at the story, is that he doesn't just take us apart and leave us there. What Jesus does that's so beautiful in the story is that he establishes for us a framework of hope. He puts us back together again by explaining to us 
the wonders of God's grace to us. And he starts by telling a story about the forgiveness of God. He, he tells this short parable about a money lender and two debtors. And two debtors owe money to this money lender and normal behavior of a money lender is that they would never forgive debts. Any money lender they would know at that time would never forgive a debt like this. A denarius was worth about one day of a laborer's wage. So think about maybe a month and a half for the, for the man that owes 50 denarii and, uh, and maybe a year and a half of earnings, sheer earnings for, uh, for the person that owed 500. And the point that Jesus is making is that both of them have something in common. They have no dreams of paying off debt that looks like that. That there's, no, there's little difference between the two of them. They will labor their whole lives trying to pay off this debt. And they, in many ways, they owe their, their lives to a money lender. And the money lender um, behaves in a way that's completely otherworldly. That he sees their burden and he forgives the debt that they owe. And what Jesus is doing is he's not just providing another narrative of understanding our lives in this world. He's providing the narrative that explains to us fully our existence in this place and who we are in relationship to each other and to God. He's explaining the way because what he's saying to us is that that we all carry an unpayable debt, that, that we all labor under the burden of a debt before God that our sin has caused. But he's also telling us that God doesn't behave like the typical money lenders of, of their day. What he is, that God is, is someone to whom care, grace and forgiveness is deeply embedded in his character. That he is the one, that he is the one who looks at us with an eagerness and even maybe an, a longing to forgive his people. And he explains to us that, 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 um, that God is the forgiving one to whom that we owe our lives. And we all stand equal in that place. And listen, it was because of forgiveness that this woman adores Jesus. She understood forgiveness. And it was because of forgiveness that Jesus is at that dinner. And it was because of forgiveness that Jesus ends his life on a cross. And it, it was because forgiveness that Jesus came in the first place and said things to us like, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus labors so that we would know together the forgiveness of God and be freed by it. And when Jesus tells this parable, he's giving us a completely new way of understanding our very existence. And he says God's goodness and grace given to us through Jesus Christ is the transcendent way of understanding our lives under God's authority. But he doesn't stop there. He's also, what you see is that Jesus is standing between this woman and her accusers. 
It's incredibly beautiful. It's like he's standing in the way and interceding on her behalf. Two people are judged here. Jesus is being judged, and this woman is being judged, but only one is defended. Because Jesus is interceding on her behalf. He's not concerned about himself. And he says that her actions are completely understandable. That this is the, these are the actions of a person who understands. She's been forgiven much. And so she loves much. And her, 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 even her stumbling affections where she becomes undone as she contemplates the wonder of who Jesus is, it should be normal. It should just be completely normal. And then, even though the people at, at this dinner have probably had their peace disrupted, Jesus looks at her and says, go in peace. He says to this woman, he says, her sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. How well do you think that she knew peace in her former life? Do you think... That was a peaceful life for her. Knowing Jesus gives her complete peace. Peace is not something that we create. It is not something that we experience if we do all the right things. Even the best vacations don't necessarily give us peace. Peace is the beautiful, inviolable outcome of God's work in the world and His work in a person. If you want to know peace, it comes through forgiveness with God because He makes you right. And that's where peace, transcendent peace, that you can't earn or fight for or lose. Peace comes through knowing Jesus. And this is how Jesus establishes our hope. This is a framework of hope. This is the reason we can look into our futures and not be afraid. Because he says peace, the peace that we all long for can be found as we trust the man who stood between us and our accusers. Uh, And did it all because of his unyielding desire. Like Jesus wants to bring grace to bear in your lives. He wants you to know this forgiveness. And you will know how much you treasure. And I will be remiss if I didn't just ask you this. Ask you to think about this. How sturdy is your peace? Do you know peace? Are you easily unnerved? Or do you know, does, does, does what you know of Jesus and the forgiveness that you enjoy, does it, does it give you peace? If you're like me, your neck might be stiff with straining by looking for peace around every corner. And I want you to hear that peace is found where this woman found it. It's right at, the, right at Jesus' feet. If you're in Christ this morning, Jesus has seen to your forgiveness. It is final. And he interceded for you then, and he is interceding for you now as he sits on the right hand of God's throne.
And he stands with you now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he promises you peace through his forgiveness. And you don't have to earn it or fight for it. But it's yours forever. Listen, you know when you don't have to be afraid anymore? You know when you don't have to be held captive by relentless reasons for fear? Um, You know when you don't have to be afraid of what people think of you when maybe you say or do something stupid at a dinner party? When you know that the host of the dinner party loves you and that love is never going away. And when you know deep in your heart that your sin doesn't define you any longer in the eyes of God, that he adores you so much and rejoices over you, that even though he has seen the worst of you, he is not embarrassed by you or your stumbling affections, and that he sent his son so that you could stand forgiven. And friends, you are forever welcome at his table. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we can look at these stories and see that these things are true, but I pray that you would convince us of their truth in such a way that we trust the things that are most important to us to you. And help us to embody a witness of trust in you that we can walk into your world with peace on our hearts. I pray that, um, that you would strengthen our faith and help us to find our place at your feet, adoring you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.